Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, I'm sure if you've been listening to this show that there are people out there who have friends and family who are skeptics of all this stuff, all this woo-woo stuff, as they say, spiritual stuff and unexplainable phenomenon and spiritual phenomenon in general, reincarnation and so on. Well, today on the show, we have proof, scientific, verified scientific proof, because our guest today is scientist Mona Sabani. And Mona has dedicated better part of her academic career to studying spiritual phenomenon and citing specific studies in every aspect of spiritual phenomenon. This conversation is the one you want to hear if you want to maybe convince or prove a lot of the things that you've been talking about to your spouse or families or friends. Let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show. Mona Sahab. So, ah, one more time. Three, two, one. I'd like to welcome to the show, Mona Sabani. How are you doing, Mona? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I was telling you earlier, anytime I get to talk about spirituality and science, it is one of my favorite subjects because they are getting closer and closer every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things that were talked about 5,000, 7,000 years ago, science is starting to kind of catch up to. Yes, I know. It's funny. It's like progress. history. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So my first question is, what was your life like before you started on this crazy adventure? Yeah. I mean, I was a normal, um, I mean, quote unquote normal. I don't know what that means anymore. Um, just a typical scientist, materialist scientist. Um, I, I worked at a digital health center. I was a, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training. I did Mm -hmm. like brain imaging work for most of my career. And then in the last few years before all of this happened, I um, was working at digital health centers. So we were using technology like wearables and uh, mobile apps to collect data from people, Mm -hmm. um, physiology, and behavioral data to see if we could predict health and human performance. So I don't know, I was just doing that. And I loved it. I was really passionate about it. I've always been, you know, I I love science. I've always been passionate about how can we measure? (laughs) How can we like use tools and technology to um, get a better understanding of how we work biologically and behaviorally. So, yeah. No, now, were that. you, did you have a spiritual background or a religious background? No, not at all. I was very, um, actually very anti-spiritual and anti-religious kind of, because, um, I mean, I just I don't come from a religious family and um, never really needed it. I wasn't exposed to it a lot. And then the more and more, you know, by the time you finish grad school and you get more pulled into science, you just, your whole, the way you think about everything changes um, drastically. And you really think in a more 
quote unquote scientific mindset, a very a reductionist um materialist mindset. And it's hard, it was hard for me anyway to see where spirituality could fit in there. So yeah. So then what was the spark then? What was the spark that decided because I've had other scientists on, I've had quantum physicists on, I've had neuroscientists on. And it's always interesting. There's always that thing that <laughs> sends them off onto <laughs> this road and then they start bringing their science in to the new knowledge that they're learning. So what was it for you? Yeah, it was just a series of life events as it, you know, usually is it's like a <laughs> perfect storm of things. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it started, I guess, like the seed being planted to there being, to me, understanding that there's more to the universe um, was that I, I'm Persian. Is That's my cultural heritage. And my, uh, in our culture, we use I mean, not in modern day Iran, but in our traditional culture, we use a practice of divination, which means if you have a skilled reader, they can use anything like tarot cards or, um, I mean, runes, or in my family's case, it was coffee, um, coffee grounds mm -hmm. um, or tea leaves. I guess people are more familiar. So you, I mean, you can read anything because the idea is that the universe contains information in, in every form. So my grandmother used to read coffee grounds and it's not american coffee it's like um middle eastern coffee so you leave the grounds in the cup you don't use a filter like american coffee and then you let them dry and then the reader looks in and tries to find pictures and stories and into it information about your life supposedly mm -hmm. so my grandmother was really good at it um and my my mom uh, also did it kind of for fun for family and friends all the time. And I never, you know, I, I, she never did it for me. I never paid attention really until I was in grad school and I would go home on the weekends just to see my parents, my mom and I would have coffee and she would, she just would absentmindedly like pick it up and start reading for me. And um, I just didn't really pay attention to it until, you know, the, she did this for me for months, years. And then I started noticing that the things that she said would come true. And sometimes <laughs> there'd be months in advance and there would be things that she couldn't know. There'd be things that I wouldn't know, right. Mm -hmm. That I wouldn't expect to be happening. Uh, like we're moving at work or something like our lab suddenly moves. And so there were things like that where I was like, wait, that's so weird. How could she have known that? Um, but it was also the deeper I got into, into grad school, as I said, the more your mind goes into a scientific mindset and you kind of start, especially in neuroscience, you're taught that everything you create meaning, your brain creates meaning, you're finding the coincidence. So it was a real like cognitive dissonance I lived in, like, cause she was right. So I listened, I would always write down. I started writing down what she said. Cause I'm like, oh, she's more right than she's wrong. I don't know how it works, but it's useful to have it. But I never tried to understand it. Um, and then two huge emotional life events happened where she saw in the coffee and that's, these were my like tipping points. So one of them was she kept seeing something kind of ominous in like six weeks in advance of it happening. She, and she'd never seen anything like that before or never gave me warnings like this. But she started saying, like, I think you're going to get some really bad news. And and it was it was creepy and it was scary because for six weeks I was like, what is the news? <laughs> like, where is it coming from? What's going to happen? Um, and then one of my professors um, was killed by one of the students at our university. Oh, wow. And it, it was awful and unexpected, out of the blue. It was so unusual. It was just, you know, like one of those crazy things that you can't believe <sighs> happened. Um, and it was someone I had had helped me with my dissertation experiments. And so it was a terrible event in general. But on top of that, I was so shook 
about how it, my mom foresaw a death. Like, so everything else up to that point had been, you know, like, don't make sure you don't, you pay your bills, make sure you don't misplace your wallet, <laughs> like little things like that, uh, daily things. But this was a death. And so this creeped me out because I was like, how could the information of someone's death be out in the universe like six weeks in advance? And it upset me very much. But I, I and I wondered about fate and destiny and, and stuff like that. But I was, you know, moving through grief and then I was really busy at work. And so I didn't really, it just kind of rattled me, but I didn't do anything with it. Um, and then a few years later, there was another event like that. I started dating this guy that my mom had seen coming. It was so like weird. She like saw him for months and months. And I was like, I'm not dating anyone, I swear. And this guy like came out of the blue. Um, and then she kept saying it was going to be positive and then it ended. And so to me, that was not positive. So I was, um, I was upset because I was also not very happy at the time. And I kind of had decided, I was like, okay, this relationship is going to make me happy, which, you know, in, in hindsight, um, that was a red flag for me as a person, like, hello, mm -hmm. this is not how you should live. <laughs> but mm -hmm. so, um, I put all my faith in that. And then when that fell through, I, it was a dark night of the soul moment. And it wasn't just the relationship, right? It was like the, it was kind of like everything that I probably had been brushing off or suppressing or not paying attention to came to the surface. And I was like, I don't understand why we're here living. Oh, what yeah. is the point of life? Like it was, yeah. I lost hope and optimism and I was like, nothing's ever going to be happy again. So, um, so it was dark and then I wasn't ready to look at myself yet. <laughs> so instead I, I focused on the readings. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I, at first, and I was like, what is, what is it? What is it about these readings? Um, my mom said it was going to be positive. Did something change? You know, not even like, <laughs> like me going deeper and being like, is there something positive I'm missing here? Which is really what I should have done, but mm -hmm. I didn't do it till later. Um, and so I got really interested in, in the readings and my girlfriends had, you know, we live in LA, they had gone to psychics before I had never because I didn't believe in it. And they were like, Oh, we know, you know, we know really good psychics, you should well, let's go to a psychic. Um, you know, your mom's great, but maybe you want to get another reading if you're curious now. And so we went and we did this like informal kind of we went a few times, a few different times, and we swapped readers. And then we swapped readings to kind of see are they giving vague information? Is it um, information readings that you could we could swap and, and would be applicable to each of our lives but we found uh, since they had like vetted them you know they had gone to them before they were good uh, i realized that no like these we can't swap readings like they're pretty specific to each of us they would say things like really specific about each of our pasts and like correct you know as a scientist i was like they're correct on like seven variables like what are the odds of that like specific variables and they would name cities like involved with events and i was like oh my god like how many cities are in the united states of america how could they possibly guess the correct one so it was things like that that i was really taken aback and i thought um well you know maybe we don't understand everything about the universe and maybe there's information or energy or something like there's a lot we don't know about physics um but what i was really interested in as a neuroscientist was how is it coming in and how are how are we perceiving it or like how are the readers perceiving it so i got interested in that and um and then at the same time 
I, I, oh, I serendipitously was, I wasn't listening to anything spiritual. I wasn't spiritual at all at this point. I was just kind of curious about psychic readings. Um, but I was listening to Chelsea Handler's podcast and she had a psychic medium on like right at this time when I was just interested in this stuff and Chelsea Handler was a skeptic. So I was like, this is strange that she has a psychic medium on, but I listened and, um, the psychic medium was Laurel and Jackson. She's, uh, she had been tested by this institute called the Winbridge Institute. She talked about these scientific studies that she had participated in. And so like, I suddenly perked up and wrote down everything that she said, and I went to you know, go look it up and research it. Um, and then they mentioned a book, the two of them, Chelsea and Laura Lynn, mentioned uh, Many Lives, Many Masters. And they were sure. just like, it's a psychiatrist case study. I didn't know what it was about. They're just like, yeah. it's a psychiatrist case study. Everyone should read it. So I ordered it and it arrived. And then I read it and I was like, what am I reading? Like, I didn't know what past life regression was. I didn't know anything about that stuff. And I was like, this is like, this is the book they <laughs> recommended. But as I was reading it, I realized that I was like, oh, some of what the psychics, the ones that I had gone to had said went, some of what they said went over my head. And I went back to look at the notes because it matched what was in Brian Weiss's book. And then it matched what Laurel and Jackson had said. And they were talking about, oh, we come to earth to learn lessons. They talked about reincarnation. They talked about all these spiritual things I had never heard of before and never thought about. And I just kind of sat with it because I was like, you know, as a, um, as a scientist, you look for different sources of information. And I was like, these are three separate sources of information and they're all converging in the same story <laughs> that I've never heard of and that I'm not comfortable with and that I don't believe in and that in my head, there's no evidence for. But, you know, I was just curious about like, this is interesting. And then especially for Brian Weiss, because he was like Yale and Columbia educated, you know, I'm like, I was a snob. So I was like, oh, degrees. I love that. I you know, cared, <laughs> cared more about what he had to say, or I was interested. I was like, how, you know, how, how could this guy with this oh, yeah. background write this book? Um, and that was really the starting point. Um, because then I thought, well, what I read all his books and then I read all the people he referenced, um, that, and then I just spun off <laughs> into past life regression, reincarnation, near death experiences. So I read as much as I could to learn just just learn and understand the framework. Um, and to me, what was particularly odd is that as a neuroscientist, you know, and I'm interested in mental health and stuff, that um, they, these past life regressions seem to be really healing for people. And then on top of that, um, some of the, the facts could be verified from their past lives or mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, now I'm like not as interested in that anymore, but at the time I was so fascinated by that and then especially the fact that a lot of these um psychiatrists and behavioral health practitioners from the 60s 70s and 80s uh, like brian weiss stumbled across this in their practice like they weren't trained in it they didn't believe in it they didn't want to do it like it just kind of fell in their lap um like michael newton brian weiss um roger wolger like all these these um practitioners so you know i've spent a lot of time defending this or there's like so much criticism around it um, but it's, it's weird to me. It was weird to me that if you put someone in a hypnotic state and you ask them about a spiritual framework, they all describe like these thousands of patients from all these different practitioners describe the same framework. And it's not a popular one in Western culture, right? right. Like it's, now it's more, but I think at the time, if, you know, I don't, there wasn't an internet. It's not like information right. was as readily available. 
So that really just perplexed me and and was kind of the hook of like, what if there's something there? Like, what if? And like, if I stepped back into my own body and my science mind, I was like, no. But if I just, in my head, I was like, if I just step forward and ask what if and be curious, because there's something, it's a phenomenon, it's strange, uh, it may not be true, but it does raise questions about like, what is in our psyches? What, in, what is in our genetics? Why does the story emerge spontaneously from people? And so I just became curious and started interviewing people. I went on an interview journey. I started like, I need to know the answer. <laughs> I started that, interviewing people. That, that's a fascinating story because it's it's really interesting because you you've came to the same conclusions that I did because I've now done 240 or something like that at these interviews from people from all walks of life, from all around the world. And they all, there's so many common points. Rarely do I get mixed messages from yeah. channelers and mediums and psychics and near-death experiencers and, and out of body. Like it's all, the story is the same. Flavors might be different, but yeah. the story is the same. So I, it's you, you and I have both a very unique perspective in that way because we did You've done your research. I've done mine in, in very different ways, obviously. Yeah. But it's fascinating um, that this is, and I'm so glad that you're 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 a scientist with an open mind, which is not a that you're like a unicorn, <laughs> <laughs> because scientists generally are they they even even within the physics world, mm -hmm. physicists don't even want to talk about quantum physics quantum physics yeah. because it's like. Uh, it's 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 messy. We don't want to know what really is going on. Like, what's quantum entanglement? Uh, we really don't like. They don't want to talk about it because because <laughs> they don't know. Yeah, <laughs> because it, because it completely destroys the foundation of everything they've put their life and work into. Yeah. But you were brave enough to just go. Ah, you know what? I think I'm gonna go down this road. It's fascinating that you did that. I just yeah, I just couldn't. Um, I just couldn't stop. Really, it was like a compulsion because I just couldn't believe it and. I just thought that it hinted at more like we just don't understand. We must not understand our reality. And it wasn't just, you know, that kind of literature. I mean, I found connections with so many other kinds. I found connections between psychology. So then all of Stan Groff's work and Carl Jung. And I just started finding, and like you mentioned, physics. And uh, started seeing these like Nobel Prize winning physicists, uh, you know, very much into non-dual spirituality. And like, it just all kind of at first seemed very separate. And then at one point it all just converged and I was like, oh, it's very simple. Actually, it's all very related. And it, when you read enough of it, you're like, it's not really a big deal. I don't know why it's such a big deal, but I know why it's such a big deal. It's because people's egos and identities and our whole paradigm, our whole Western culture, everything is found, uh, you know, founded on scientific materialism and physicalism. And it's hard to get past that. But I think there's a shift happening, oh, yeah. um, especially, oh, I was going to say this because um, it's true. It's true that scientists publicly don't. And that's one of the points I make in the book yeah. is, is they publicly don't admit this thing. But if you ask them in private, as I did, um, they all of them have their own stories. They may not believe, you know, people are on a spectrum of belief because, and I think, I don't think belief is linear. You don't, go from one thing to believing another, like, I think we all fluctuate back and forth and are trying to figure it out. But they all had their, their own stories. And they all uh, admitted to me or we all we, we talked about 
how we don't know everything. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, And if you do science, like if you do experimental science, you'll be the first to admit that because we make a lot of decisions in our experiments. We make a lot of assumptions. Like we don't know everything. Um, And we can't know everything with our tools. So in private and in cocktail hours, they'll tell you and they're all interested. And like, I was really surprised. Some of my colleagues um, like me had members of their family that had, you know, intuitive abilities. I had um, colleagues who had read all of the literature that I was just starting to read um, about psychic phenomena. And I was like, oh my God, you know about it? Like, you know, these authors. Um, And some of them have even tried some of the methods themselves. So I think they're just very curious, but there's so much stigma around it that we just kind of whisper um, in private to each other (laughs) about it. Um, But I don't know. I just thought it was so disingenuous and really, like I said, there, by this point, I got to writing the book. Like there had been so much evidence that I was like, this is actually unscientific. And <laughs> I kept coming back to that story of Galileo and how like his colleagues wouldn't even look through the telescope because they didn't want to be wrong. And I was like, this is, this is today. <laughs> like people don't want to read the papers or they don't want to admit it. Um, but it's all there. Like a lot of the research has been done. And that's what was frustrating to me because I would tell people the story and they would be like, well, you know, um, well, all psychics are fraud and there's no um, scientific studies. And I'd be like, really? Because I just spent months reading all of the studies. (laughs) So there's actually a lot of research and it was just kind of frustrating um, that it's that it's ignored. I mean, and and I have no stake in it. I don't do that research. I don't, you know, I don't really care either way. But I just think if you're really trying to understand reality, why wouldn't you include, you know, all of that research too? So let me ask you, what research have you seen that starts to prove certain aspects of spirituality, of psychic phenomenon, of near death experiences, of past lives, of reincarnation? In your studies, what have you found? Yeah. So, I mean, the reincarnation work at University of Virginia, they've done a lot with children, I think, like between yeah. ages of two to five. So kids, some kids um, will remember, you know, have memories, seemingly have memories from past lives. And so the University of Virginia team, they've done this for years. It started with Ian Stevenson, and then now it's, I think, Jim Tucker who's running it. Um, but they've come up with like scales and methods to to kind of... Um, mm, make sure or validate that the children are having um, that, you know, it's not something their parents fed to them or that it's not a false memory. So they have this way of kind of validating the memories. Um, And oftentimes I think it's something crazy, like 60 to 70% of the cases, I think they can actually identify the previous personality. Like if they get enough information from the child where they can go like locate the person's, um, you know, birth certificate birth certificate right. or, or death certificate or or life history and they can they can compare and co- um contact family members and then compare notes and through that kind of research and they published it there's so many books they have a lot of papers um yeah so she, i mean that's probably the closest we're ever going to come to proving reincarnation because it's it's kind of a hard it's a hard quick, thing it's a prove. tough thing yeah it's a tough thing. yeah it's not a lot of uh, beakers it's not, and it's not uh... easy. Yeah. And then the psychic phenomena, um, I mean, the U.S. government 
I wrote about this in the book, but the U.S. government, which did a lot of research on this, they had like a 30-year, 25-year program. Um, I, and that those were some of the people I reached out to. I spoke to some of the physicists who did that research um, just because I was like, are they, I read all the papers and I was like, this is, you know, insane. Bonkers. Like it's, it's all, bonkers. Yeah. a lot of it is classified, but some of it's published and some of it was published in like Nature and some big science journals. So I wanted to speak to them, you know, to see if um, they were like crazy, <laughs> but they weren't, <laughs> they were lovely. Um, and then I know some people don't trust the government. So those uh, studies have been replicated and there'll be things like, you know, very well controlled studies of computerized tasks. And they'll have, like, you know, the computer randomly will choose like one of four or five symbols. And then, you know, the odds of a symbol coming up, let's say if it's four, the odds is 25% of, of the time you'll be correct if you're guessing. Um, and then they'll have a person try to guess the next symbol. And they, you know, some people above chance can can guess the correct symbol. Um, and they have is, more complicated. Oh, isn't isn't that the scene from the opening scene of Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters yes. Yeah. <laughs> what he's doing <laughs> when uh, Bill Murray's yeah. doing that kind of psychic ability yeah. test. But they they computerize that task to make it much more <laughs> scientific and more, <laughs> less verbal. What a great and scene! What a great scene! Yeah, I, mean, I love that movie. Um, but yeah, they've they've done a lot of studies like that, and they've done more um, even unconscious ones. Like they they found that your so in in neuroscience and psychology studies, sometimes we might you might give a response like verbally, or you might give a response like by tapping a button. But we can also record unconscious responses, and usually that's like heart rate or or sweating. You start to sweat. So if you're like you know you hear a loud noise, your heart rate goes up, or you start to sweat. So they did those kinds of studies. So it's more unconscious, like it's not the person. Um, and they they did like a time thing where if they show like some sort of image that normally would make you sweat or your heart rate go up, um, does the person's physiology respond in advance of the picture being shown? And they found that to be true statistically ahead. So it seems like, so it's either that our statistics and our experimental designs, there's a flaw in them because we use these methods for all of the rest of our science, for all the rest of our psychology and neuroscience, if you're finding the same results with this very odd phenomenon that we think shouldn't exist, then there's something wrong. If you don't want to admit the phenomenon is real, then something's wrong with our experimental method and our statistics. Um, either way, the whole the either way the whole system comes crashing down. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. I mean, the easier thing would be to just admit that there might be a phenomena and to look into it, but. You know, either way, it's it's interesting and it should be looked at. And then, you know, outside of, but the thing is that outside of the laboratory, that's why it's important to have both laboratory studies and, and, and I, I don't like the word anecdotal anymore, but that's mm -hmm. what you would call it, it's anecdotal evidence or empirical evidence that's not from the lab, um, mm -hmm. because then it corroborates it. Like I said, there's convergence. Um, and you have, and of course, it's not just in the lab, right? It's people you know, no, suddenly knowing something or thinking of someone right before, right at the second that they call, right before they call, or, you know, ha waking up to a vision of someone and then that person died at the same time, you know, halfway across the world. So you hear a lot of these, these kinds of things. And so you're like, okay, yeah, you, we try to bring it into the lab to see if there's, um, you know, we could put numbers behind it, but there's still stories out there in normal day-to-day so, -day life. So I have to ask you because I've had, I don't know, a 40 or plus near-death experiencers on the show already. Mm -hmm. I love to hear a neuroscientist's approach or opinion of 
the near-death experience phenomenon. Because again, just from my anecdotal experiments <laughs> interviewing that I've done mm -hmm. from people from around the world and also had a scientist on who studied ind indigenous mm -hmm. near-death experiences, which I always, mm -hmm. I'm like, Jesus is everywhere. He's the hardest working man in show business. Uh, he's oh, at everybody's near-death experience. Like he's always around. But I go, but what happens to a tribesman? What happens to a Buddhist? What happens? And they were like Aborigine uh, near-death experiences or African tribesmen near-death experiences. Were, but they all have similar things. So if it was just an American phenomenon or a Western phenomenon, why are they having it? I'd love to hear your point of view on it. Yeah, they're um, so the typical, and this is would have been my response, you know, before this research journey and transformation for me, is that yeah, your brain is losing oxygen and some cardiac arrest, let's say, um, and and the, the truth is we can't explain it. <laughs> so, and because first of all, we don't even know how the brain works in a normal state. So we have. <laughs> Like we don't try to really, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So in a dying state, we ultra don't know what's going on. Um, but, and we'll just say, well, you know, it's an unusual physiological state. Um, and then we have all these explanations, like there's not enough oxygen, they hallucinate. But what's interesting, what we've been talking about is the similarity between what people see. And it is interesting. I mean, there's some cultural context I, uh, in the literature, like um, you know, uh, they may see certain figures from their own culture, but there is also, like you mentioned, cross-cultural things that people see. And there's just like, and people have done the studies. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, actually, there was like, there was one uh, that just came out last year. And I think it was comparing um, near-death experience. I'd have to look it up. It was like near-death experiences and mystical experience or something. Like people are starting to do the actual like word compare, like break down the narrative that the person gives, compare the words and the experiences, categorize them and compare them to different. So there, I think that work is starting to be done of like, it's called the phenomenology. Like how do people describe the experience? Like what are the words that they use, the tones that they invoke, that kind of thing. They're trying to break these experiences down into those um, those characteristics and then compare them across. So that's sort of, I think some of it's been done, but I think more of it's starting to be done. And I think the similarities across them are interesting. And to me, the most interesting thing about NDEs, the NDEs are hard from it to prove. Okay. You know, like it's hard, <laughs> it's hard. Neuros uh, there, like, there, you're never going to convince a neuroscientist or a doctor. Um, right. But I didn't interrupt you, but yeah, but there is been verifiable NDEs where they hover I'm, above. Yeah. I was just going to say that yeah. what I, what I find interesting and um, about them is when they can see, they see like some other, you know, like the waiting room of the hospital or they're with their sister who's driving to their consciousness is with their sister who's driving to the hospital. And then they come, when they come back to consciousness and they say like, Oh, um, you know, I heard you telling my daughter when you called her in the car, um, or whatever, thank you for saying that to her. And, you know, their sister's like, what? <laughs> so I like, I love those stories of like, oh, they know what was going on in the hallway or in the waiting room or somewhere else where their consciousness could not have possibly been, but then they, they provide data or information that you can verify. And to me, that's just 
would seem crazy and you could brush it off, but it's not because you have all these other cases of that, right? As we, as we talked about, like there's a lot of other instances. So there's, you know, it all, it all comes together and you can't just brush it off. Now, did you, in your studies or uh, or your research, did you find any studies where they connected either channelers, medium psychics to a brain, a scanner, if you will, to see what happens to the wave length of their brains when they're either channeling or doing a mediumship or doing a psychic uh, reading or something like that? Um, so I think, I mean, at the time I wrote the book, I did try to look at that. I haven't since then, which has been a few years. So I don't know if there's been any published since then. When I looked, there were a few, I think there was like a few that had used trance mediums. There were a few that used like nuns that went into trance states or meditative states. Um, the problem with brain data is that it's very noisy and messy and you need a lot of people and you need a lot of samples we call it so you need like the person to be in the scanner for a while repeating the task you need from them so that you can like compile all the data together and look for the the true phenomenon that's going on and get rid of all the noise because there's a lot of noise like your brain's doing a lot of stuff right so the th- problem with brain data is that to find a true effect you need so many studies so many subjects and so many trials and with unfortunately with the, the these kind of phenomena no money has been put very little money has been put into it so so few studies have been done that there's not a lot we can say with confidence but um i do know that that there seems to be convergence on the fact that when you go into altered states of consciousness like certain you know put your brain to a certain frequency like a very relaxed state that state between sleep and wakefulness, deep meditation, there does seem to be something there. Like that's the kind of state where, which is like your brain's in, you know, kind of a lower um, frequency. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I, shouldn't even, I shouldn't even say, I don't know anything about sound harmonics and stuff, but um, just a lower frequency. And like, it's, um, it somehow has access to something, the field, if you will. I don't know. Some people, we don't know what it is, right? We don't know anything, mm-hmm. but some of the studies that have been done have looked at um, a few psychics, a few trans um, channelers, I think. Um, but I can't say anything definitively because there haven't been enough. There's not enough like good overlapping data. Uh, and how about meditation? Because there has been obscene amounts of research into meditators and Buddhist monks and like yes. really yeah. deep meditators. Well, I could say this from the meditation literature, which you're right, there's more of that and the psychedelics, which is just happening now. um, There is a network besides the putting, putting your brain in a um, kind of a meditative, I'm just going to use that word meditative state. Um, It does seem like there's a network in our brain called the default mode network. And that is the um, network that when you're not engaged in a task, like when you're just kind of sitting and you're like thinking about the past and the future and whatever, um, that's your default. And so that network is activated when you're doing that, when you're just sitting. And it's very self-focused, right? It's like, I'm thinking about me, my past, my future, my moment. Um, and it seems that meditate um, in med- certain types of meditation and people who can meditate really well, you see the default mode network kind of being deactivated. There's less focus on the self. And that's what people say when they're meditating, right? There's less focus on the self. There's your boundaries between what is me and what is not me 
what is me and what is the environment blur and you expand and you become one. And so you kind of see that reflected in the, the neural correlates. And they've seen similar things with psychedelics, which is interesting because initially <laughs> psychedelics are like, we would have expected an explosion of brain activity because there's so much, um, the subjective experience of taking a psychedelic is very sensory enhancing, right? Like there's more visuals, there's more sound, there's more light, there's a, a lot more emotion, there's a lot going on. So uh, the hypothesis was that you would see the brain have more activity, but in the initial studies, they actually found that there was less activity, which was really confusing. <laughs> and the default mode network was one of those areas where there was less activity. Um, but then when you think of it, like in, in conjunction with the meditation literature, oh, it makes sense. Like there is sometimes less of a focus on yourself in psychedelics. Like it breaks you out of that normal state of thinking about yourself, right. which we are all doing all the time. And it, it widens your perception and expansion. And that's, you know, on psychedelics, you can, oh, I felt connected to everything. I felt connected to the nature, to everyone. Um, you know, I, I lost my sense of self, my ego dissolved, and I was one with everything. And so it, it makes sense that you would see um, a decrease in default mode network. But that it, that story is nice, but it's not the full story. And they're they're continuing to do research. So we'll learn more. Well, now that they've kind of decriminalized it um, and now the scientists can actually go back and do research on psychedelics that they started yeah. back in the 60s, thank God. Um, there is because it's there's I, I'm, I'm fascinated with psychedelics and what it does to the brain. And I've had I spoke to a um, uh, a military veteran with PTSD and he went and took some ayahuasca three days in a row, took ayahuasca down in the, in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And now he's just coming back. He's like, I just tell all of my vet friends, you, this will help you. This, it, There's something about it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. We're going to get a little bit more on the philosophical standpoint with the mind a bit. When you take a psychedelic, you said something really interesting that your view widens because when you're here on this plane, this earth, this experience that we're all going through, we're, our vision is very, very tunnel vision. Like you were saying, me, me, me. What is this? Why is life happening to me? Oh my God, you're bad. I'm good. All this kind of stuff. But psychedelics does the same thing as meditation does, as spiritual, as, as deep spiritual practices does, which it opens the door, your, your view. And then you like, you start to become one with everything. When I ask a spiritual master that they go, it's a cheat because you're only going through that door. First of all, you're not invited into that door. Secondly, you only could do it for a short time and you can't Ramdas said that he got tired of going and coming back, going and coming back yeah. until he finally found meditation and yeah. the Maharashi. Yeah. So what's your point of view on that awakening kind of thing that it does in the brain? Yeah, that's a really great question. <laughs> and I, well, <laughs> I, I was thinking about it lately because it's, well, I, I think psychedelics are, are great. I'm not, encouraging anyone to do them <laughs> but i do think in a clinical in a clinical yes, environment in a clinical please. setting in the right yes. environment with yes. the proper care and preparation and integration and set and setting and all that mm -hmm. um i think that they're great um i understand what the spiritual traditions are talking about because depending on the dose and the substance that you're using um this is actually one of the things i'm really focused on right now because psychedelics can 
well, and not just psychedelics, any, you know, you could have a spontaneous mystical experience. You could have a deep meditative um, experience that blasts you open. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So it's not to narrow it down to psychedelics. Any mm-hmm. of these trans- self-transcendent experiences can be very disruptive to your understanding of yourself in the world and and your worldview. And those things are not, those are, that can be a problem for you. And that's why these things need to be, you know, especially psychedelics, because it is more of a like one point, it's like two hours intense thing. You need to prepare for it properly. And it really helps to have someone with you as you're going through it to guide you. And then also, especially afterward to integrate it, because you may not understand what you've seen. You may not know how to incorporate those emotions into who you were before the experience because you may be someone completely different after. And I, I, it sounds weird talking about it, but it's true. And it's it's so, so important. So I understand when the spiritual, like when they say that, it's true because if you go into it naively, not prepared, um, it can really, jack really you mess up. you up. <laughs> it can jack you up. Yeah. But, like, but if you're, but if you're, you know, in a journey of 20 years or 30 years in the spiritual path, whether that would be through meditation or other spiritual practices, not religious, but spiritual practices, doing inner work, you are kind of prepping the body and the mind and the consciousness mm-hmm. to open slowly. It's a slow, right. Right. you know, even ascended masters took lifetime to get yeah. to where they were, as opposed to the psychedelic it's a cheat and you kind of walk in the door. I talked to, I talked to one person who had a psychedelic experience, um, a screenwriter in Hollywood. And he was in the sixties. It was, it was Timothy Leary's LSD long story. And he's, he said that story. I bet (laughs) I think he, Oh, it's fantastic. story. but he went all the way to the end of the universe in his trip. He met a being and the being said, you're not supposed to be here. Go back. Then he came back and then like, he did it again, like maybe a year later, he went back to the same place and the beings there. You're like, what do you, I told you, (laughs) you're not supposed to be here. Go back. That's really funny. I've heard, I've heard that. But some, some people have, yeah, they'll encounter entities that are like, oh, you're not supposed to be here, (laughs) which is so strange. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I'm telling you, you never know what you're going to get. It's, it's wild, but I do think that they're valuable. And I do think that if you can prepare for it um, well, that it's good because just because in this day and age, um, dedicating yourself to a a meditation or a spiritual practice is a high um, threshold to reach. Like it's, it's hard for people. And so it is a cheat, right? Like you're saying, but I don't know. Sometimes I think it's a necessary cheat because also just knowing that you can get that feeling, just experiencing some something gives you hope that you can experience it again. And um, you know, whereas it, it might take you years from through meditation, but I think obviously they should go hand in hand and always with care. But I'm not quite as strict as I don't. I I think about that like the cheat because people have mentioned it to me, and I was like, I don't know. I don't think anything's a cheat. I think if it's available, it's available. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. Right, but it's kind of like if I yeah. show you a crack in the door, and it's dark in your room, and all you can see is a little sliver of light, and I give you a, a cheat to crack the door open real quick, 
you see the outside and then the door closes and now you're back in that same little room, you are now aware that there is a bigger thing. So I think you're right in a sense that when you go into that, it does from, from, uh, I forgot who's doing a lot of the leading research in, uh, in psychedelics. I forgot what college is doing it, but there's a sign. Yeah, it's Hopkins. Exactly. Uh, a little known college, a little known, uh, you know, <laughs> institute. Yeah. Um, the, the research that they're doing, they're saying that everyone who goes through it, it's, it's like eight out of 10 say it's, or like five out of 10 say it's one of the top five experiences of yeah. their life up there, like with birth of a child, death Ooh. of a family member. And then it's 80% it's, actually it, it's it, on the study, but right, it's, it's, it's 60 to 80%. It's top five. And then there's even a little bit higher than that, that it's the number one experience mm -hmm. of the, because it's a glimpse of what is there. And it answers a lot of questions in that glimpse. Yeah. So there is value there. And I love, what do you think of microdosing? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't, there haven't been that many studies on microdosing, like well controlled ones. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I did, I, I searched for them, but people seem to, I don't know, it seems to work for people, but the truth is we don't know if that's placebo or not yet. Um, but I think Paul Stamets, um, actually just released a study last year. He's a mycologist. Um, and they, they showed like a good effect. So again, there's not, uh, if you're looking, there's no like double blind, there haven't been any studies like that yet. They're probably being done now, but it'll take a while for them to publish those. But for people, they've, what they've done is like ask, you know, like internet survey, like do you microdose? And then they'll ask for the results and people report, oh, it, you know, increases my productivity, my creativity, my mood. It brought me out of my depression. It brought me out of my anxiety. Like nothing worked for years and years. Um, you know, some people have tried everything for their depression and then they start microdosing and it works. So you know, we we don't know, but um, if it's the placebo, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm with you. I totally. <laughs> that means something's I, working. That means yeah, you're doing exactly. it yourself, and that's even weirder. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. I know. I'm always like, it doesn't matter if it works. Just continue doing it. I'm, I don't think it would will hurt you, but yeah, that's not a popular thing to say in America. With the FDA is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this: You said something earlier about uh, when we were talking about meditation. And the, and when you get down to these lower frequencies, um, and that from my understanding too, there was like, they got to gamma and then there was a, a, a monk said, oh, I could go lower. And they discovered a whole new frequency after, after the monk, mm -hmm. because he's a 30 year, 40 year mm -hmm. monastery monk. But you get to that late and you said something, you said, yeah, they're like, yeah, they, they get access to the field. Now I know what you mean. Can mm -hmm. you explain to everybody listening what the field is? Yeah. Um. I just use that because uh, in my book, I published, I, I cited, I, published, I cited one paper. So I read a lot of theories about what, you know, what could, what's a model, like what's a model of our reality that explains some of these phenomena um, mm -hmm. or just in general, what's a model of like a different model of consciousness. And because some of these phenomena, one explanation for them is that consciousness does not arise from our brain per se, which is what traditional neuroscience believes, conventional neuroscience believes, but that maybe consciousness is something filtered through the brain. Maybe it's a field of energy. Um, and I've actually found in the last few months, a few articles published in peer-reviewed scientific journals posing multiple different theories similar to this. Um, they all vary on things, but the idea is basically like maybe 
there's a field of, oh, because we have fields. We have electric fields, electromagnetic fields right. all around us. Gravitational fields. Um, quantum fields. Yeah. So the theories vary widely, but I took one it, paper just as an example in the book. It was, it's by um, uh, Kepler. Um, it was oh. like 2020. And the mm -hmm. theory he uses is cosmopsychism. And his the theory basically goes that, let's say consciousness is, uh, oh, actually, I don't think he, does he use consciousness? Oh. Now I've read so many papers, I'm getting confused. But anyway, he says, he proposes that there's a field um, that runs through everything, right? It's a field and, it's, and that it contains two aspects, not only a physical aspect, but also a pheno phenomenological aspect, which is what I was talking about earlier, that subjective feeling. So like, what it feels like to be me, like nobody will ever know. Like you'll never know exactly what it feels like to be me mm -hmm. or the way that I experience water or drinking um, alcohol or having a strawberry. Mm -hmm. um, and the same is true for you. And neuroscience has no answer for how our firing, the electricity in our minds creates this experience, this subjective experience. And so he proposes that this experience is its own thing in the field next to the physical things and that it's possible that our brains our physical brains interact with the field through these like states like it goes into different states different frequencies and it pulls down experiences and part of that is this like subjective experience this experience so that's one example um and i know that oh that one of the physicists that i spoke to from the sri um the stargate um is that what it's called? yeah start start programs yeah. Yeah. um he had a theory that it, he calls it the zero point field. It's like, I think it's a quantum field um, that runs through everything. And I say in the book, it's like the Star Wars, the force. It's the force. It's, like it's the force. force. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. And that um, we basically are in touch with it all the time, but that in certain states, we have more access to it and that the field has everything. It's like the past, the present, the future. It has all information. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that that's how we would be able to get information that we're not supposed to have. Like I'm not supposed to, in our physical world, in our normal model, I'm not supposed to have information about what you're doing. You know, if I'm not talking to you and you're on the other side of the planet, but in certain instances, like we've been talking about, people get that information somehow. And the, the question is how. And so those are just some of the models. Like maybe there's a field of information and sometimes we can access it better than others. So is that the Akashic records? Yeah. So I guess that's what they say. The people, the physicists who propose these models say that maybe this is what the spiritual texts have been talking about right. um, because there's a lot of, uh, yeah, like descriptions of this same exact thing in non-physics terms in the spiritual texts. Mm -hmm. So, and they say the same thing. Like, it's crazy when you look at the text, they say when you quiet your mind, you get access to, right. I don't know if they use the word field, but the records, right. So they know that when you quiet your mind down and take the focus off of yourself and expand your awareness, suddenly you have more, you, you're getting more information that you shouldn't be getting and, access and, to. And what you said, what you just said, again, for, for people listening is like, you widen your awareness. I think that's the key to all of this is yeah. the widening of your awareness, experience and understanding of the world. Because if you have a very small point of view, you live a small kind of point of view life or, or, or experience. But as yeah. you open yourself up to other ideas and thoughts and experiences, 
even on the physical level, you have a more rich life, but mm -hmm. on the spiritual level or the deeper levels, you, you start to see things differently. I'd like to ask you though, from your scientific person, when you were Mona, the scientist, mm -hmm. to now Mona, the spiritualist slash scientist, how has your experience changed um, from the, I guess, a smaller scientific point of view to this wider point of view of, oh, this is so much bigger than I thought before. How has just living day to day for you changed? Um, yeah, it's changed drastically, which is another reason I wrote the book because, and it's changed on multiple fronts. Cause I think, first of all, I found that spirituality was useful, which was surprising to me. <laughs> it was valuable. <laughs> I didn't, I, it, um, the simple, like, so from that karma reincarnation, like, uh, spiritual framework, um, I took the exercise of what if every event and experience in our lives is meant to help us grow and teach us a lesson, which modern day psychology even, you know, uses that to propel people's growth. Um, but for me, it was suddenly had a new metaphysical dimension to not just how do I make meaning and how do I grow from this experience? Like, what if there was a bigger plan and a bigger purpose that I'm going through this, you know, through this experience, a reason for, and asking that simple question changed my day-to-day -day experience drastically in a way that I didn't expect. Um, like it calmed me down and kind of, again, got the focus off my, my negative experience of the moment onto, um, okay, what could this possibly mean for me and my life experience? What would be the purpose of this? Why is this happening to me? <laughs> but right. in a, in a, like in a more, in a better way, um, that, that really helped. And then, I mean, just the idea that we're all interconnected. And I think that once you, I think that once you open to the universe, I think it opens to you. And I talk about this in the book too. Like it, even if you don't like any of this metaphysical stuff, there's a lot of philosophers and physicists who think that we live in a participatory universe. Um, and so once you do that, which I did, I, I just noticed so many more synchronicities like uh, and coincidences. So a lot stronger connections between me and the people in my life, like crazy things happening. And I just take them as like reminders that we're, we're all connected and it's nice. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a nice feeling. So it's it's drastically um, drastically changed my life for the better. It's also provided just meaning, which I think was missing before. Um, I, I found some texts that you know from the um, from indigenous cultures. Uh, it's from a historian, this Western cultural historian, Richard Tarnas. I read one of his books, and he talks about like how the Western mind and how our Western culture emerged. But um, one of the distinctions is actually this, is that cultures used to, they didn't think of themselves as separate individuals right. from their communities or from nature. They saw, that's why they always were in balance with nature. But Western, the Western mind emerged as the individual as separate from nature, you know, in well, order to dominate nature, right. control nature, subdue nature, and also separate from each other. Um, and that they, you know, cultures like my Persian culture, like we, you, everything in the universe has meaning, like they, everything is imbued with meaning. Um, and so you're always reading the signs, right? That's why you might see, oh, two hawks 
flew over at the moment I spoke about this thing, like it must be significant, which Western people might laugh, Western culture might deride, but people used it for millennia successfully um, to guide their lives. So I think that that idea that the universe is meaningful in whatever way that, whatever that means for you, um, for me made a lot of sense. Like for some reason with my life experience, it just resonated. And um, I don't know, it just helped me in my day-to-day -day living. <laughs> now, as a scientist, uh, we, as we stated earlier, uh, they're not the most open-minded of a, a, of a groups of group of peeps. Uh, so when you came out with this book, how were you how were you treated by your colleagues by friends you know that that are in the business the scientific business what how did you deal with it uh i thought everyone was going to abandon me <laughs> but <laughs> you didn't have a near death experience you just wrote a book about scientific studies let's just put this clear here <laughs> yeah um i thought everyone was going to leave me no but uh, but like I said, a lot of them have their own experiences. So actually, it's been um, pleasant because pleasantly surprising that a lot of them have reached out to me to say, like, I really loved your book. And I've, I've always thought there was more, you know, or I've had this, this or that experience. A lot of scientists have reached out to tell me their experiences because they've had no one to tell. And right. since then, I found uh, like we had me and a collaborator had a we held a neuroscience and spirituality social at the biggest neuroscience conference in November. And we, we kind of marketed it as like, have you ever had an experience you couldn't explain whether you classify it as spiritual or not? And I thought no one was going to come. I was like, oh, I'll just go because I told her I would do it. But, but then 50 people showed up and they stayed the whole time, like three hours, and they were so excited to discuss these things. And they wanted us to like create a group and send them reading like reference lists. And so we did all that. And so I think, and since then, I've just daily been connected to more and more scientists and to other groups of scientists and, and physicians um, of people who have either experienced these things or are interested. And so, I mean, now it's a totally different thing, right? Like um, before November, it was just like one-on-one -on -one or my, fr my scientist friends would be like, I read your book, I loved it. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. But now, <laughs> now I have a whole community of like hundreds of scientists and so now it's like i don't actually care if there's a few sure. that don't believe it because it's just that they may not have experienced it yet but it doesn't um invalidate the experiences of all those other hundreds of ones that have so that's yeah. remarkable i pre i i applaud you for being brave uh and not only putting this book out but just having the initial curiosity and openness to just dive into the research just as simple as that just diving into the research it's not like you're you're propo proposing woo-woo stuff here you're proposing woo-woo stuff that is now backed by yeah. studies and continuous studies that are really shining a light on things that we thought was insane yeah <laughs> you would have been burned at the stake let's just put it I, frankly you would have been you... <laughs> exactly <laughs> maybe that's why it took you a while to get this out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests. What is your definition of a good life? Oh, well, I really think, I really believe that it's being able to find meaning in every moment. And um, and I think relationships are the, um, I mean, you know, they're to me the most important thing in our life. Like I actually had a, um, 
<laughs> near-death experience on a psychedelic once. And the only thing I thought about in the moment that I thought, oh my God, I died, um, was my all of my relationships. I didn't think about any of my accomplishments, my achievements, right. money, quote, nothing, just the people in my life. So when I came back, I mean, you know, it was life-changing. I was like, oh my God, the only thing that matters are, are the, you know, people in our lives. So I think nurturing those relationships and just finding meaning wherever you can make a good life. <laughs> what is, uh, what is your, how do you define God? Um, the creative force of the universe. Fair enough. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Be the expression of that creative force, probably. Good answers. And and where can people find out more about you and where can they purchase your book? Uh, my website has everything. It's Mona PhD. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Mona Sabani PhD.com. And you can buy my book wherever books are sold. Um, there's links to it on my website. That's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Inner Traditions. And yeah, the name of the book? There. Uh, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena. And do you have any final words for our audience? Um, stay radically curious. That's my new, uh, my new mantra. <laughs> Mona, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for the good work you're doing in the world to hopefully help us all awake a little bit more every day. So thank you, my dear. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. I want to thank Mona so much for coming on the show and sharing all of her findings with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 234. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.